Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Do saints have special aromas? How about demons? Does Bigfoot really stink? Hello and welcome to the 845th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I am Ben, and those punching questions came from my co-host, partner in Paranormal Adventures, and dad, Paul. And today, we bring you a new guest on a very unusual subject that really doesn't get a lot of light shed on it. No. And uh, we welcome your call. Well, actually, we don't welcome your calls today, uh, unfortunately, um, due to some some uh, technical issues. Uh, we cannot take any phone calls, but feel free to contact us via our many other platforms, uh, including... B- Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com for email, or you can contact us by Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Uh, Co-hosting with us today for the first time in a while is our beloved casting producer and eminent behavioral scientist, Lori Greer. Uh, She and today's guest have a mutual interest in music, um, while our guest and I have a mutual interest in journalism. Uh, Lori, welcome back. Thank you, Paul, and thank you, Ben. Nice to be back on the show. It's always great to have you with us. Unfortunately, we don't have you on Skype uh, video, but we'll, we'll be uh, listening to you in an audio uh, uh, manner. Okay. I know, I did, my hair for, I did my hair for nothing, I guess. Oh. <laughs> you did it for yourself, Lori. Unfortunately, get to, get to, people get to see mine. I look like something we talk about on the show after uh, two months without a barber. Anyway, And I have the luxury of being bald, so yes. we're, we're all doing great today. <laughs> well, there we have the hair report. Uh, a North Carolina native, Joshua Cutchin, holds a master's degree in music literature and master's in journalism from the University of Georgia. Joshua is the author of two fascinating books, 2015's A Trojan Feast, the food and drink offerings of aliens, fairies, and Sasquatch. i got to read that. And uh, 2016's The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural sense, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas, the subject of our show today. Both are published by Anomalous Books. Joshua is also a published, published composer and maintains an active performing schedule as a jazz and rock tuba player. He lives in Roswell, not New Mexico, Roswell, Georgia. Mm. So Joshua Cutchin, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I, a slight addendum, I'm actually up to four books now. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. We're going to update your website, man. Well, yeah, you know how it is. You have like all these different places that want your bio, and then sometimes oh, yeah. you just lose track of them. So, but anyway, yeah, uh, so I'm glad to be here. Nice way to spend a early Sunday afternoon where I am. Now, we first met Joshua a little more than a year ago at the in Warwick, Rhode Island, at the... Um, uh, I can't remember the name of it. Oh, X Filers United. The X Filers yeah, United. Yeah. That's right. And we had a wonderful visit, and we're really great to finally get him on the show. So go ahead, Ben. Take it away. All righty. So let's start off with some some background uh, in in you know in how smells can be related related to the paranormal phenomena. So in your book, you go into spirit smells, UFO smells, and Sasquatch smells. So what smell goes with what phenomena? Well, it's interesting. This is something that. You know, every now and then when I'm reading these books, because I started out, you know, just as a, as a fan of, of speculative nonfiction, which is what I like to call it, instead of, you know, books on UFOs, you, you get less grief when you say speculative nonfiction. Um, <laughs> right. That's very, really clever, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, so I've always been a fan of these topics, and what I've always found interest in is, is really the interconnectedness between these topics. And, uh, you know, my first book, uh, A Trojan Feast, was about sort of the role of food and drink in these encounters and how that sort of plays into older western european fairy folk beliefs but the the smell thing was something that i always thought was this really overlooked possibility of for investigation in these different topics so in a lot of times especially if you look at like you know keel and stuff there might be a paragraph here or there discussing the similarities between these between these different sorts of odors that are noted but it uh, never really got more in depth than that in very few cases. So this was something that I thought was really you know ripe to be investigated. And uh, you know the the short, the shortest, quickest to the point thing I guess I could say is that there is a strong tendency for um, sulfur compounds to appear in paranormal encounters. Now of course the book is called The Brimstone Deceit, which was an older you know older name for sulfur brimstone. Uh, but that's not the only topic, that's not the only scent, rather, that is, is consistent. There are some other scents that recur time and again that, that deserve attention as well. You know, cigarette smoke, perfume, especially in the case of, uh, the case of, you know, ghost encounters, um, the smell of ozone, just, just smells of decay, 
that's actually one of the most common things is these these smells of decay. But the problem that you run into very quickly is that people will often describe something that let's say they just describe it smelled like you know smelled like a rotting corpse whatever they're encountering well that doesn't really tell you what compounds are at play so you sort of like take a look at what causes the odor of something decomposing and try to pull that out but i would comfortably say without hesitation that the most commonly noted smell i would say a plurality of cases not a majority necessarily in any of these different topics like you know ghosts or ufo's or bigfoot but in a plurality of cases uh, in each of those different encounters uh people notice uh, hydrogen sulfide which is the rotten eggs odor you know the um the 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 odor of flatus is the best way <laughs> the most polite way that i could put mm. uh, what people will be familiar with but yeah it, it's it's an it's a compound that uh, pr- presents itself whenever you have decomposition um in the absence of oxygen okay well, there we go. Uh, I've encountered it once or twice, but uh, Lori has, wants to get in here. We've got uh, some questions and thoughts from uh, from Lori. Go ahead, Lori. Um, hi, Josh. I just started reading your book, The Brimstone to See, um, oh, yesterday. So I haven't been able to get through uh, a lot of it, but I did get some of it. So as I was reading it, um, and I may have the pronunciation of this term wrong, the phantasmia, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, phantasmia, yeah. Which is which is phantom smells, and I work um, in healthcare. I work with um, individuals also with with mental illness and other other illnesses. And some of these um, the phantom smells um, can be triggered by lots of medical diagnoses, such as temporal lobe seizures, epilepsy, any kind of head trauma. Um, you know, it's associated with Alzheimer's and also like with migraines. And in my case, I have a, I have nasal polyps. So I am always smelling something that is not there. And most of the time, the smells, the odors are unpleasant, and they're kind of really hard to describe. So is phantasmia, is this an illness? Is it a medical diagnosis? Could you just speak to that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's good to have a, uh, a voice put to a name. <laughs> um, so hello to you, too. Uh, so, yeah, you see this. So there are certain... Um, neurological conditions associated with smell. Um, you've got things like anosmia, which is the inability to smell, cacosmia, which is the misinterpretation of pleasant smells as unpleasant smells, uh, dysosmia, which is sort of a distortion of smells, and phantosmia. Um, unfortunately, in a lot of ghost hunter websites that you'll find out there, they'll describe phantosmia as, as, as smelling a ghost because it's a smell that's not there, but that's not exactly what it means. As you mentioned, it is definitely a, a neurological, um, condition some something gets misinterpreted between the nose and the brain and it's a smell uh that really doesn't exist there's no reason that it should be there um how this differentiates from something like the spirit smells or the the smell of a ghost or some sort of genuinely anomalous smell is that if you have true phantasmia uh where which is you know an, an internalized neurological condition i wouldn't be able to smell what you're smelling at all whereas if we were in a haunted house and we smelled a lady's perfume we would both be able to smell it so slight distinction there why this happens um is by and large not fully understood um some people would be surprised that we still haven't really pinned down from a scientific perspective exactly how we smell. We know that there are some receptors that sort of lock and bind like keys and, 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 and lock holes, but uh, the actual mechanism for, for, by which we interpret it and by which the, the smell particles <laughs> enter our nose and, and, and have this lock-key mechanism is really poorly, uh, is poorly understood to the extent that there are some researchers out there, some actually non-fringe researchers who have posited that there might be some sort of quantum component. Now, of course, I'm not going to... I think it was Richard Feynman who said that uh, if you think you understand quantum mecha- mechanics, you don't. So <laughs> I'm not going to comment. I'm not going to comment on what exactly that means. But it is one of those things. Like uh, you know, people don't realize that we also don't fully comprehend from a biological standpoint why we sleep or you know these different things. We know that there are benefits to it, but we don't you know exactly understand the, the mechanisms like we should. So it's one of those little mysteries that, that still endures. And something about phantasmia and the way your sort of internal wires get crossed, I think. Uh, it's interesting. I think I think it speaks a lot to these paranormal topics about how much of a role we play as interpreters and how much of that we bring to the table when we have these experiences. My other question, after reading about a lot of the odors that you describe and then thinking about, um, I have a, a an individual who has olfactory hallucinations. Most of the odors are 
pungent-smelling, bad-smelling, icky odors. You don't read a lot about um, smelling things that are pleasant. And I think it's more difficult to describe um, unpleasant odors. Much It's much more difficult to describe than um, than pleasant odors. I think I think you're true in that respect. You know, I sort of alluded to this earlier that sometimes we suffer from this tip of the nose phenomena where you, you kind of, you know you recognize the smell, but you can't really put a pin in what it smells like. Um, the fact that most of these olfactory disorders tend to manifest the perception of, of you know, smells of, basically I, I would sort of put an umbrella term over it and call them smells of entropy. Um, that's again. That's another one of those things that I'm not entirely sure we understand why that is. Um, you know, from a from a sort of metaphysical standpoint, I would contend that um, it may have something to do with you know just the fact that everything tends towards entropy. You know, if you if you if you have, if you're encountering some sort of interdimensional creature or being or or you know entity, um, it's almost as if they can't necessarily stay here for very long without sort of that entropy catching up to them quicker than, than most things. But, you know, I've, I've noticed, I've noticed that myself. Um, there's also, it's important to notice that smell is also very much context based, right? So if I, I use this example in the book, if I blindfold you and I hold a hunk of Parmesan cheese under your nose and tell you that I just puked, you're going to have a different reaction than if I tell you, oh, this is Parmesan cheese, we're having Italian for dinner. And that's, even though the, 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 you know, the the specific acids are shared between a lot of cheeses and (laughs) the human digestive tract, um, it really is context dependent to the extent that there have been, uh, there have been experiments where people are given, um, they're, they're given orange juice that's been colored red and they're told that it's cherry juice and they, they, they associate the cherry flavor more than they do the orange flavor. Uh, that's, that's more taste based, but you get the idea. Yeah, okay. Uh, Laura, anything, anything further right no, now? I'll, I'll, um, well, in a little bit. So okay. With your, <laughs> so I guess that, and... Oh, sorry, Laura, didn't mean to step on you there. No, I'm all set, thanks. So I guess that kind of brings up the question, which is, um, uh, f- forgive me if I'm 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 inexperienced in in sort of the the neurological aspect of this, but let's let's sort of I want kind of want to focus on sort of the context in which these smells mm-hmm. appear, right? So yeah. one would assume that you know a loved one just dies, or you know you have a bunch of people running around with cameras in your house and strange devices that beep and whir. Would you would it be possible? That you know, some one, some of these these phantom smells can sort of appear through stress. Is that is that a possibility? Through the stress of like an individual, like a human being producing stress, or like the, for example, the bereaved producing stress. I guess is what you're saying. Or well, no. Basically, what I'm oh. saying is you imagine things because you are stressed out, right? So, for example, yes. I um, this is kind of a backwards thing, but I, I got into a really bad car accident a few years ago. And, you know, I kind of had to force myself to get back into driving. But there's always the – if you ever get into a car accident, there's always that smell of, like, an airbag deploying or, yes, like, something yeah. from it that just takes you right back to it. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, PTSD, right? So I was driving to a film set that I was supposed to be working on in Brookline, Massachusetts, and I was driving on the highway, and there was a one uh, – it, it went from two, two lanes to one – and this SUV tried to cut off uh, a 18-wheeler and then failed miserably, and then they just poof, collided right in front of me. And I, as I drove by and got around it, I smelled it, and instantly, you know, stress, anxiety, all oh, the way yeah. to, the, <laughs> to the set. Now, could it be sort of a, a, a reversal of that? Right, I see what you're saying now. Yeah, um, so there, there's a couple of things that make this whole whole problem of olfaction really sort of confusing and and not the least of those is the fact that especially are if you're having a wake inside someone's house um smells do permeate walls um this is sort of something that's been more or less demonstrated in the ghost hunting literature is that you know under smells can be absorbed into certain environments especially like wood and smoke being absorbed into the wood and then under certain Conditions can also sort of leach that smell back into the environment as well. Uh, conditions regarding temperature, humidity, etc. Regarding what you're talking about specifically, um, so that might be an explanation for you know somebody having an experience in someone's house and them thinking that it's a ghost, but it's actually just a really mundane explanation. Um, now, as far as what you're saying about sort of this reverse engineering, it's interesting to me, and I think it's it lies at the heart of why 
we have such distinct odors when they appear in these paranormal encounters, um, it's interesting to me that being able to smell a specific odor that's associated with a specific emotion or a specific time, it really does in a profound way, uh, more so than any other sort of recall issue a complete physiological visceral response like it bypasses all your all your cognition and goes straight to to that initial memory you don't even have a chance to think about it it will you know it'll 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 bring that memory right around to you um you know that being said i i can imagine that because there is such a strong link between smells and memories that if something is particularly traumatizing enough i think it probably would become easier to um easier to sort of have a smell conjured in your mind's nose, if it were. Um, that's sort of a contentious point amongst olfactory scholars as to whether or not you actually can, actually, you, whether or not we do have a mind's nose, um, because it's so different than the way that we, you know, interpret things visually with our mind's eye. Um, I would argue that you, that you, that we do have, <laughs> have a mind's nose and that, uh, in that by, because that link between memory and smell is so strong that not only can smell produce memories, but I think memories might even be able to produce that sort of mind's eye or mind's nose effect for, for smell as well. Hmm. Well, uh, on that note, <clears throat> we have a question <clears throat> Excuse me, from uh, Joseph Citro, our good friend, uh, known as an author in Vermont, and known as the Vermont's Bard of the Bazaar. Ah, uh, yes. So, Monsieur Citro writes to us, uh, Your upcoming show is a topic that has puzzled me for a long time. Although I am aware of many examples, my own experience is this. I live in a small single-family house built in 1786, of course. Uh, presumably, a lot of people who have died here over the years, and now uh, of and I uh, and I know of at least two. The most recent, a previous owner, uh, died here around 2012. She died of emphysema and refused to quit smoking even on her deathbed. My office is the room in which she died, of course. Yes. Um, we can't really assume there is any casual relationship between death and ghostly owners, but the fact is that sometimes, even in the depths of winter, uh, when the whole place is sealed up tight, uh, people can can uh, or people here can smell cigarette smoke very strongly, and just in certain specific locations. Uh, no one smokes in the house. Uh, no wood is burned. Uh, the place is uh, snugly winterized or snugly winterized in 2015. Uh, so I'm guessing the odor is not wafting in from elsewhere. I can think of no ex- explanation of the smell of cigarette smoke, just the odor, by the way, uh, it is not visible. Excuse me. Uh, can the walls somehow absorb the exhaust of a lifetime smoker? And when conditions are just right, release it uh, years later so when somebody, or so someone new can enjoy their secondhand smoke. Or is it the fact that it is a ghostly phenomena? And why would a ghost have come back in, <laughs> in the form of cigarette smoke? <laughs> um, I suppose a lesser possibility is that it is the smoke from the fires of hell, and I should quickly consult an exorcist. Uh, I'll, I'll be tuning in for sure. Uh, if you use my question, please feel free to rephrase and condense. No chance, Joe. No chance, Joe. <laughs> you're, 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 the, you're the word master. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, that's... I would lean towards unless so, so so the odors that you find most commonly dissociated from a physical apparition of some sort tend to be smokes and perfumes and these are both sort of problematic in the sense when they're just smelled with no accompanying visual or you know sort of environmental effects when it's just the smell it becomes more likely in my mind that it is the odors being absorbed into a structure obviously I mean you would think that the conditions that he outlined would would preclude that, um, especially because of you know you don't think about odors necessarily being released in cold environments. But uh, you know it was I think it was Andrew Malcolm Green who who actually did a lot of the pioneering research on looking into um, again this idea that that scents could be absorbed and released back through temperature and humidity. Um, even something you know as as relatively benign and common as just friction on a surface that's absorbed smoke um, can release odors that are that have long been long long been dormant um, in something especially like smoke I mean anybody who's <laughs> anyone who's had someone smoke for like you know 20 minutes in a room of their house will know that <laughs> that can linger for days so you can yeah. only imagine yeah. what a yeah. lifetime you know accruing especially if you've got 
especially in older houses where you have more exposed wood, you're, I think you're more likely to get that than you would in, you know, with typical drywall. Um, it's interesting about, you know, coming back as a smell. There's something that's, I mean, there's something that is so elegant, I think, in the metaphor of, of smell as sort of its own supernatural encounter. I mean, you have this thing that's sort of, it's sensed, but it's ineffable. You can't really put your finger on it. Um, but you definitely know when it's there, and you definitely can smell it. Um, one of the things that I've always thought is interesting is, um, you know, people tend to say that, that uh, oh, my, you know, my dog, Saul, sees, sees um, ghosts, or my cat sees ghosts, or whatever. Um, but I've often wondered that, you know, whenever you see your animal, your pet, look in a direction and just freeze and stare, and especially if you have a haunted house, maybe it's not that they can see them, but they can smell them. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a phrase that some veterinarians employ that, you know, you and I, when we wake up, we we first get our glimpse of the world with our eyes, and when pets, especially dogs do, <laughs> they, they, they get the first glimpse of the nose with their, of the world with their nose, rather. Um, you know, some of the estimations about the sensitivity of dogs' uh, sense or the dog's ability to smell is between 10,000 and 100,000 times as acute. Um, and if it's even if it's on the lower end of that, if dogs can smell just 10,000 times better than us, that means that what you can see at a third of a mile, a dog could see if we extrapolate it to vision at 3,000 miles away. So it's it's an incredibly intense, and that's again that's on the low side of estimates. So it's an incredibly intense uh, sense for them. And I've often wondered if it's connected with that, and if maybe there isn't something kind of fundamental about the way that these things um, present themselves that isn't tied in some sense to to odor and, and olfaction. And, you know, in the case of the dog, it doesn't have to be an overpowering scent. It can just be a little bit of, you know, just a little bit of a ghost <laughs> in, in stealth mode <laughs> floating by uh, with, the, with, the, with the smell attached to it, a very minor, minor, minor smell that we would never detect. Well, there you go. Well, <clears throat> it's probably a good time to take our bottom-of-the-hour break. And then we'll come back and see if Laurie has any more thoughts. And then I have a couple of cases I want to put to you for your opinion, jo- uh, Joshua. Uh, you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno and our special guest co-host, Laurie Greer, today. And our guest, Joshua Cutchin, on the, the uh, fascinating subject of aromas uh, associated with paranormal phenomena. Uh, on WOON 1240 AM and WOON 12, uh, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. And if I can clear my throat long enough, uh, we'll get through the break and we'll be back. So stick with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade, the finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnye.com, talkstreamlive.com and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal here on WOON Radio. And we are enjoying a wonderful conversation with our uh, one of our producers and uh, special guest co-host, Lori Greer, today, uh, also behavioral scientist, and Joshua Cutchin, uh, eminent author and uh, journeyer into the world of olfactory uh uh, things that, that occur in paranormal phenomena and, uh, it's just something that is not well studied and it's, uh, so it's great. Uh, okay, uh, Lori, did you have any thoughts, uh, or questions at this point? Actually, um, of course I did. I can't be quiet for this long. <laughs> I had a comment in regards to what Ben said about his, um, having that response to, um, seeing and smelling, um, the accident and this long-term odor memory I've read that it can be established just after one single exposure to um, to an odor, and then in the future it can spontaneously trigger trigger these memories. And if you look like look at the behavioral uh, pairing theory, it's uh, kind of very sim- similar. And when we look at smell, this stimulus it's really one of our most powerful senses when it comes to engagement with the past. Um, and that part of the brain that interprets the sense that we inhale works closely with the amygdala and the hippocampus, which also rule memory and emotion. You know, when you think about you catch the aroma of something that takes you back to your third-grade classroom and, you know, the, the scent of your, your third-grade teacher or, you know, uh, something that takes you back to your second-grade friend's childhood house, um, you can see how very powerful um, this long-term odor memory um, is. 
And then, then this, this next one is just to, uh, to Josh, if he could maybe explain a little bit about, and I may pronounce this, this incorrectly, the miasma theory. Um, I was particularly interested in that in thinking of um, what is happening in our, our country and around the world with the spread of the virus. So I think this was kind of linked at one point to the spread of infection. Um, so I just would, would want maybe a little um, comment on that. Yeah, well, uh, but before I do, uh, you know, to your point, that's an excellent point that you make, and I, I think that's part of the reason that olfaction has gotten so much attention throughout philosophy. I mean, there are some people like <clears throat> like Freud and some some Greek uh, philosophers who also thought that you know uh, olfaction was sort of a base sense; it wasn't nearly as refined. Uh, it was more animalistic. It wasn't as refined as as vision. But at the same time, I think over time philosophers began to ascribe the fact, or rather ascribe olfaction, the attribute that it could kind of cut through deception. You know, your eyes might deceive you, but your nose doesn't. That's where we get things like, you know, the nose knows, or this doesn't pass the smell test. It's this idea that your your eyes can be fooled and your intellect can be fooled, but there's something that is very fundamentally, um, it, it, it serves as a way of verifying our external reality that things like vision and, and touch might might not, um, and that's the reason that I think it's so important in these different you know these different paranormal topics. But yes, uh, you pronounce it right. <laughs> the miasma theory um, it uh, it probably stretches back to around the second century, where with uh, Galen of Pergamon sort of described this idea, but it sort of persisted um, probably into the late 1700s, especially before we had any sense of germ theory or whatnot. Um, there was this idea that Foul smells were actually the things that caused uh, that caused disease and caused uh, plagues and whatnot. Um, which is, you know, why you often see people <laughs> they didn't realize that they were actually, you know, protecting their their mouth from pathogens, but they, you know, would often cover up their faces and cover up their noses because they thought that was the primary means uh, for which these the primary vector by which you would actually be able to get this these um these diseases into your body. Uh, there are some people who describe the Black Plague, they attributed to like this deadly corruption of the air. And similarly, um, you can even look at indigenous belief. Uh, some of the tribes around Lake Ontario believe that uh, the lake serpent up there uh, actually would come out of the waters and it would use its breath to spread disease as well. Um, so, and it's something that... I mean, it's interesting how they sort of arrived at that, and, and there's there is a conceptual truth to it in terms of you know how airborne pathogens are spread. I think it's really interesting how superstition kind of was accomplishing something that we wouldn't fully understand until much later. Yeah, that's often the case. Uh, Laura, anything else? No, I'll give you a turn. Okay, uh, <clears throat> I wanted to um, point out just a couple of cases and get your thoughts on this, Joshua. Uh, in the Bridgeport Poltergeist case of 1974, on the Monday night of the case, uh, it was uh, November 26th, 1974, uh, when I was alone in the house with the uh, little girl and uh, the, uh, the the couple who were her adoptive parents and then a reporter and one other person. It was very few people compared with that, uh, what was usually going on in that house. Uh, but the <clears throat> Poltergeist case, uh, and there were four entities that uh, appeared in the kitchen amidst the smell, very strong smell of ozone. Mm. And they came into the, uh, the and actually had a, a physical altercation with one, which really threw me for a loop because it shattered my belief system. These are supposed to be spirits, you know, totally non-physical by definition. Right. Uh, but uh, the smell, th- th- that was one of the few occasions I've actually encountered that sort of thing. And my interpretation has been, and of course it could be all wrong, is that we're dealing with intersect points among parallel worlds with uh, plasma, uh, or at least electrified air molecules, the same thing, uh, as uh, forming part of the boundaries of these things, uh, these these worlds or, or whatever. Uh, that's our operating theory. And that the, the ozone smell may have resulted from the breaking through of of the po- of that intersect point, much as you would, you would have it uh, after a thunderstorm. You, you smell the ozone because the molecules of the air have been split. Uh, what say you on any of that? I mean, that that's one case. Um, and then on another on another occasion, there was uh, we, we I don't know if you remember this, Ben. We moved into our house in 1996. You were four, and uh, we there th- was had an old carpet, 
And whenever it was very, very damp outside, you would sometimes uh, smell cigarette smoke. And uh, having, oh, I do remember that. Yeah, yeah, really, yeah. Yeah, actually, now now that you say, it, uh, here we are. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, I mean, to me, rather than than uh, assign a paranormal explanation to that, it seemed as though it was just the dampness bringing out the uh, the smell of somebody who was a form who had lived in the house who was a smoker for many years, as you uh, yourself kind of illustrated, Joshua, earlier. Uh, but I didn't attribute to any sort of uh, paranormal explanation. And then the third thing is just. Uh, Bigfoot. I want to get into that before we run out of time. Uh, supposedly they really stink. That's one of the, the it's defining characteristics. However, my Bigfoot encounter, which was relatively close, uh, I, I didn't smell anything like that. And, and uh, I think that probably there might be an explanation of sort of a, uh, a, a skunk-like reaction, uh, a defensive reaction uh, on the part of some of these various individuals or, or species of, of this creature, you know, if it really does exist. Uh, I believe I, I had a, a close encounter with one. However, uh, what, what do you say on those three things, uh, three possible ex- explanations for three different paranormally associated uh, aromas? Well, now that we have the final 20 minutes sorted here, um, <laughs> no, um, so, so I, I'm going to start, obviously, with, with the description of ozone in, in the poltergeist case because that's, that's one that's sort of a sticky wicket to sort of unpack. Um, you do hear, and I, I haven't seen this, I've found several references to this, and I'm not sure if it's always the case, but you, I have heard of uh, people after an exorcism uh, claiming that the room smells with the odor of ozone. Um, ozone is used as an antimicrobial, so it sort of, it sort of ties into the idea of something being cleansed. Um, but it gets really... Um, the history of ozone and brimstone, for lack of a better term, and by, by which I mean just general sulfur-smelling compounds, is uh, is kind of complex, and they interplay off of each other in different ways. Um, so, you know, we have this idea of brimstone, of the sulfur smell, meaning something's evil, like it's a demon or it's the devil. And it's interesting because if you look at every mention of, of brimstone in the Bible, um, and you'll find throughout the Old Testament that it's not really a negative thing. It's used as a fumigant. And in fact, you know, that's the reason that a bunch of acne medications still have sulfates in them is because it actually has, again, those antimicrobial qualities. And the breath of God is is described as this cleansing breath of brimstone. So when, you know, Satan casts, sorry, when uh, God casts Satan into the fiery lake of brimstone, it's not necessarily that, you know, Satan loves the fact that he's, (laughs) he's in stinky brimstone. It's an effort to cleanse Satan of his evil. Um, and this gets further sort of, um, you see this interplay reflected in, you know, the ancient Greek word for brimstone, which was thion, which also has the same, same root as, you know, the divine thios, you know, theology, that same idea, and for which we still get uh, the name for certain sulfur compounds today called thiols. And the reason that there was this association between, you know, the uh, between God and the gods, the good gods in antiquity, um, and and uh, sulfur is because it was thought that the smell of lightning strikes were the smell of sulfur. Now, obviously, that's not <laughs> what it is. It's, it's very much the smell of ozone, which is a photochemical reaction whenever there's energy dispersed in the air. Um, this kind of got further complicated in the opposite direction when you saw these people, you know, especially in, like, the Victorian era and, you know, moving on from that, especially around the early 1900s as well, where it was recommended that you take a visit to the sea because the ozone from the sea was good for you. Well, <laughs> it's actually dimethyl sulfate is what people were describing as ozone. Hmm. Um, so so, so they, they played off of each other a lot throughout the years. Um, they are, you know, both of the main sulfur compounds that you find in supernatural encounters, uh, I would say the two most common ones are hydrogen sulfide and sulfur dioxide. They both react in notable ways with ozone when put together, um, either breaking out into... Uh, subsequent sulfur compounds or just creating water, depending on the amount of energy that's invested in that reaction. So these sulfur and, and, and ozone, sulfur compounds and ozone are really closely connected throughout history. Um, as far as what that means in your case, uh, I think that you're onto something because, you know, you do have this idea of, of things crossing barriers. This is something that Keel talked about a little bit. Um, but also, I, I think about how often light phenomena are associated with all these things. You know, obviously with UFOs, um, and obviously with, you know, certain, uh, you know, spirit infestations, but it's becoming more and more of an openly, uh, an open secret that 
places with high Bigfoot activity often have these mystery lights, these ghost lights around them. And, you know, we think of ghost lights, we think of ball lightning, which also ties into that ozone thing. So it's, I think it's entirely possible that that may be a, be a byproduct of some sort of phase shift or some sort of, you know, plasma reaction where, you know, whatever this is, it needs a certain amount of energy behind it to help, help it manifest. I, I think that you're definitely onto something with that. Um, yeah, the, the, the smoke, the damp smoke thing, I would probably attribute to just the weather. You know, I, there was a period of time when I would, <laughs> I would smoke cigarillos in my, in my car and invariably, and this is entirely anecdotal, but invariably, uh, whenever I would do that and it was raining outside, like the, the smell would just cling for days and days and days and I'd mm-hmm. say, I'll have to stop it. And eventually I did stop it, but, <laughs> um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I, I would, I would say that it's probably tied more towards the, uh, the odor than anything else. I mean, and you know, I, we keep on coming back to smoke, but it really can be any odor um, that can be trapped and, and released uh, over time, given the right conditions. Um, and then, you know, finally onto the Bigfoot thing. You know, it's interesting. The way that people have described Bigfoot through the years, in addition to being, you know, like sewage or rotten eggs, which is obviously a reference to. Um, hydrogen sulfide, people described it as being a skunk smell, a musky smell, an animalistic smell, this, that, the other. Um, but as you mentioned, it's not present in every case. And there are people, I believe it was John Green, who claimed that the smell wasn't that prevalent in cases in general. I disagree with that to a certain extent, but at the same time, you can't deny the fact that there are plenty of people who um, run into you know Bigfoot, Sasquatch, and don't describe this odor. And I think it does sort of uh, suggest the possibility that there might be some sort of defensive mechanism at play. Um, there are some researchers who have found, uh, I mentioned this in the book, of, they found a skunk, it was an area of Bigfoot activity, and there was something that had, bit, the skunk had crawled into this PVC pipe, and something had punched through both ends of the PVC pipe, where the skunk would have been to sort of trap it in there, and the skunk carcass was found with its scent glands removed. So, there's the possibility that maybe, we got, we're dealing with a couple of possibilities here. Um, you know, uh, we're dealing with the possibility that maybe, uh, you know, if we are dealing with a primate that they seek out, you know, externally produced foul odors to use as a defense mechanism. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, you know, it's been long established that, um, mountain gorillas, male mountain gorillas have, uh, scent glands, typically they're sweat glands, in their armpits, and that they um, are released under times of stress, and they're generally compared to something like sweat, cow dung, and, and burning rubber. Um, Diane Fossey even descri- described some of these um, some of these odors as well uh, in her workings with the gorillas. But um, having said that, there isn't a real strong there isn't a real strong primatological um, precedent for an ape to turn on its odors on and off at will. I mean, you do have some examples where some gorillas will deliberately, you know, release diarrhea um, to uh, to sort of ward off predators or something, or, you know, to sort of discourage interaction whenever they're frightened. But, um, you know, as far as being an actual scent gland, you just don't really see that, which is why, I mean, among other things, my, my latest book is, one of two volumes that just came out. It's about high strangeness in Bigfoot, and the second one's talking about high strangeness in Bigfoot as well. Um, it's uh, I, I, it's it's one of the reasons that I tend towards the idea that there may be a supernatural component to things like Sasquatch, because uh, well, amongst a thousand other things that we spent two hundred thousand words <laughs> detailing, um, you, you don't really find that sort of precedent. And the fact that one of the most commonly smelled odors would be the same, the same sort of sulfur compounds. You hear it over and over again in UFO sightings, alien abduction stories. Um, also, you know, there's an entire last portion of the book that talks about lake monsters and fairies and, you know, star jelly, all these sort of paranormal outliers, these, you know, cryptozoological and supernatural outliers, men in black, um, black eyed kids, chupacabras. This this sulfur this sulfur compound keeps showing up time and time again and you know I, I think if people are demonologically inclined they're going to go oh well it's because they're all demons we're done <laughs> but I, I personally even though I'm a practicing Christian I I find that a, that a bit reductive what I do think is interesting and the idea that I'm really sympathetic to is that the idea um, that perhaps there is a large undiscovered primate in the woods of North America and in other places worldwide but 
its imagery is sometimes utilized by whatever this other intelligence is. Um, I think a good example of what I'm trying to say here is exemplified in the work of Mike Cleland, who talks about the intersectionality of UFOs and owl sightings. Yeah. And, you know, there's, Mike would never deny that there are things that are just owls. They're just birds. And, you know, they have their own, you know, unique physiology, but they're flesh and blood creatures, just like any other of God's creatures. But um, at the same time, you can't read any of Mike's encounters that he's collected from, you know, thousands of experiencers who have interacted with owls in really strange ways and owls that are too large for what they should be or owls that seem to display some sort of synchronistic knowledge uh, that they really shouldn't or arrive at opportune times. It's almost as if the image of the owl is being appropriated by whatever this other intelligence is that we interact with. You know, your mileage may vary on whether or not, not that's interdimensional creatures or some sort of spiritual force. I don't know, but I think that there is an objective other intelligence that human beings interact with from time to time. And I wonder that maybe we not might not be seeing one, you know, giant phenomena of Bigfoot, but also like, you know, sometimes you got Bigfoot and it's just a large undiscovered monkey, and sometimes you've got Bigfoot and the image of Bigfoot is being appropriated, not unlike the owls in Mike's research. Yeah. Okay, uh, before, uh, Lori has a final question, but before that, tell us again, uh, Josh, about uh, your books, your website, where people could find out more. So my first uh, book was in 2015. That was A Trojan Feast, uh, Food and Drink Offerings of Aliens, Fairies, and Sasquatch. It's basically an investigation of this uh, food taboo that you find throughout different world cultures, uh, exemplified, uh, first came to my attention in Western European fairy folklore as, you know, if you if you eat or accept food or drink in fairyland, you're doomed to stay there forever. Well, that same motif appears uh, in some UFO contact stories and amongst some tribes when they describe their Bigfoot analogs. So that book is sort of taking that apart and looking at the role of food and drink in these encounters. Brimstone Deceit was 2016. That's what we're talking about right now. Um, in 2018, I released... Thieves in the Night, which is a brief history of supernatural child abductions, tracing sort of the similarities between um, fairy folklore and the alien contact experience. Uh, and then just recently, uh, as of about, I believe about two weeks ago, I published along with my co-author, Timothy Renner, the first of a two-volume work called Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomena. This is volume one, which focuses on folklore. Um, and uh, we tried to make it your one-stop shop for weird Bigfoot. <laughs> so we've got good. You know, invisible Bigfoot, bulletproof Bigfoot, all that stuff. And then, <laughs> <Great>. <laughs> so, and uh, uh, my website is uh, joshuacutchin.com, and you can find links to all my interviews there, as well as my books as well. Great, excellent. Uh, Laurie, you had another question. Okay, well, actually, this isn't so much of a question as um, I just wanted to mention something that I came across in my reading, and I bring it up because of uh, Josh's background in, in music as well. So I came across an article in the February 2010 um, issue of the Scientific American where they talk about the discovery of a possible smell, sound, sense, which they um, which they call smound. And uh, the research uh, suggests that information received through the nose can also be altered when you pair noise with that. So I just wanted to throw that out because it might be a, an article that uh, you'd like to read. That is, I have never heard of that, and that is absolutely fascinating. And I, I can, I can see on a conceptual level about how you know we, we certainly get uh, emotions that come you know unbidden when we listen to certain music. And you know I've heard people describe the music of their childhood as sort of serving a similar function that we've been talking about smell having. You know this really strong memories attached to it. So that that makes sense that there might be an interplay there. That's fascinating. Thank you for that. Well, one of the they, things they looked at responses at. At mice, you know, they were they were working with mice, but they compared responses of just the smell of the odor and the tones, and mm -hmm. they looked at the tuber tubercle cells and and measured, um, you know, what they saw with that. So yeah, which I think it's worth a read. Yeah, and and I wonder how that might sort of um, dovetail with these stories of people who are synesthetes, people who I mean, I've met plenty of them. As a, you know, as a classically trained musician, people who are like, "Yeah, D flat is purple and E flat is white." I have and, that. You know, I have that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. So, I, and synesthesia is not just you know colors associated with sounds; it can be sounds associated with anything. And you know, I think I think it was Rimsky Korsakov that used to describe um, tastes associated with certain keys. So, yeah, hmm. interesting. Yeah, uh, Ben, any uh, final thoughts? Uh, 
Not particularly, no. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, I'm so happy you joined us today, Laurie, because you give us such a fascinating perspective, especially since my dad and I are not in the realms of behavioral sciences. So it is, it is nice to have some sort of balance to our balancing act here. Well, we do try to behave <laughs> ourselves. We do the best we can. You yeah. do, yes, you do. But but in in uh, just a, one final thought. Uh, speaking of sound, uh, certainly um, we a year ago actually just about a year ago this weekend, as a matter of fact, it was Memorial Day weekend last year. We were in Pennsylvania. Now Ben wasn't with us because he had to stay here in, in the studio. And I run was at this exact spot. At the exact spot to run the two hour special we did. But we had uh, an incredible UFO experience. And then uh, Lori arrived in with uh, also our, our research assistant, and uh, they experienced the next night the the tone, as we called it. And uh, actually, Lori heard it first, I think, and uh, we were in this, uh, we've described it many times on the show, but there were uh, seven of us who were witnesses, uh, except, except for Chuck, who was in bed in the next room, not asleep, door was, was ajar, and he didn't hear it, mm. okay? And uh, but I, I don't remember any particular uh, smells associated with that experience. Uh, it did lead us outside. You had the usual, you know, night smells in any rural area. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, it was. Uh, but two of us uh, here who are co-hosting uh, experienced that tone, which eventually just went off into the sky. It was it was really amazing. So it definitely well, was. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, we refer people to the show from uh, May twenty sixth of uh, or yeah twenty sixth of 2019 uh, in the podcast archives of any of the podcast platforms, and you'd be able to hear that. And also, if you search for it on the show here uh, at onworldwide.com, you can see the video uh, of the whole um, UFO experience, et cetera, and we were all down there doing a two-hour special. So, Okay, so Josh, uh, I guess we're... Um we're, well, I guess we have maybe room for one more thought. We have a very <laughs> right. quick quick question here. It has to be very quick. You get 25 words or less. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, actually, right. it's it's from uh, our um, I guess honorary kind of guest co-host in in South America here. Uh, that's uh, oh now I, I I seem to have lost it. Oh, oh and here it is. Okay, very um, very quick question there. Sure. It's a general question. So uh, do 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 do. Uh, so this is from our our yeah, ever Peter, ever Peter in Bogota. Yes, 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 and he writes to us. Can you please ask Joshua if he can share a case of a paranormal story that would also tie into Memorial Day, uh, something that would would do honor to those um, in in the memory of those who have served or died serving the United States Army forces of any era? Okay. Well, so off the top of my head, the one that probably best fits that ca- that criteria I have since discovered is not actually a true account, but I'll share it with you anyway. Right. Um, it was a late '60s edition of Flying Saucer Review. Um, uh, Jerome Clark wrote about this, and he's since written extensively about how it's not actually everything that it seemed it would be. But um, supposedly in 1939, there was a uh, military transport uh, that left Marine Naval Station in San Diego to go to Hawaii, to Honolulu, and there were some distress signals that happened about halfway through the flight. Um, and eventually, once it landed, there were air station personnel who entered the plane. They found everyone... Uh, Everyone on the crew uh, were basically dead. Uh, the co-pilot had barely gotten the plane to land, and uh, apparently there were these um, large gaping wounds on the bodies, and uh, you know, p- touching certain areas of the craft when they were investigating would leave people with skin infections. Um, there were you know uh, shell casings all over the floor. Somebody had you know been been trying to shoot something in the plane, and the smell of rotten eggs pervaded the atmosphere inside go. the plane. Uh, but apparently that's not true. <laughs> so, oh. so that's that's the one that's the one case that I've heard is not is not true. Um, in 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 Brimstone Deceit, which I'm kind of disappointed that's in there. But it's it's it is it is a famous case, even though it's not even though it's not true. And I can't recall off the top of my head why it's not true. But I've corresponded with Jerry Clark about that, and it's it's not yeah. everything it seems. Yeah, Jerry, uh, Jerry he, is really good. He kind of feels bad about it, apparently, because he was the one who put it out there, and then he found out it wasn't true, and now it's, you know, like so many other things that's taken hold. But uh, That's happened. That's uh, happened, yeah. yeah. Well, Joshua, excellent uh, conversation. Thank you so very much, and uh, give us your website one more time. JoshuaCutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N, like a cut on your chin. Outstanding. So, <laughs> so we will be uh, in touch off the air, and thanks again. Sounds great, guys. Thanks so much. And, Lori, great speaking with you.
Okay. So let us move on to our announcements. Um, of course, our uh, live appearances have been canceled because of the uh, health uh, crisis. However, uh, keep an eye again, and now we've been saying this for weeks, but we're working on it, uh, behind the Paranormal YouTube channel for uh, an event that we'll be working on, uh, hopefully for charity. Yes, and assuming things are at least semi-normal by the fall, uh, we plan to be back at the Exeter UFO Festival on Labor Day weekend, that's September 5th and 6th, as speakers to do our fifth annual live broadcast from the historic Exeter Town Hall on Sunday, the 6th at noon. The event is sponsored by the Exeter Area Kiwanis Club to raise funds for local children's charities. And we also hope to be back at the Greater New England UFO Conference in Lemonster, Massachusetts on Columbus Day weekend in October. Uh, I'm uh, scheduled to be the keynote speaker to mark the 50-year work anniversary in paranormal research. And uh, check out our, our, our own books, including uh, Behind the Paranormal, Everything You Know is Wrong, and Behind the Paranormal 2, Bigfoot, Mothman, and Monsters You Never Heard of. Uh, and now Dancing Past the Graveyard, Poltergeist, Parasites, Parallel Worlds, and God. And coming soon, we're working on it very hard, is Behind the Paranormal 3, uh, Uneasy Skies. Uh, that's the tentative title, so we'll keep you posted on that. Yeah, uh, also, I, I per- personally, I like it. Yeah. That's me. Well, that's good because you're a co-author. I know. Uh, also at BehindTheParanormal.com, you can find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us, along with some of our... Um, well, there are over 850 shows uh, from CBS Radio, four and a half years, and from here in Owen, 1240, and some special shows and podcasts. Uh, those are present on most of the podcast platforms that are popular, including iTunes uh, and Apple Podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. And all of those good things. And there are links to several charities uh, that we have adopted on the show that's on our show website, including USA Cares, Canadian Veterans Advocacy, Helping Haiti's Orphans, Youth Mentoring Connections in Los Angeles, the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of America, and the Sisterhood of Ground Zero, along with the Milk Fund here in northern Rhode Island. And I want to thank Lori Greer, our, our distinguished producer and eminent behavioral scientist, for co-hosting with us today. As she, that happens all, all uh, too infrequently, and we'll be uh, hearing more from Lori, hopefully, in future shows as a co-host. Uh, and Ben, what do we have uh, in the oven for next week? So next week, May 31st, Exo Studies and the Paranormal, looking at the paranormal in a much bigger way than we are used to doing. <laughs> uh, we'll, this will be the subject as we will welcome Dr. Sean Esbjorn uh, Hargens, along with special guest co-host Kathleen Martin. Okay, no time for a quote. Laurie came up with one. We'll have to hold it for next week. Uh, anyway, I'm... Oh, uh, no. Uh, Laurie, take us out. It was a good one. Um, my quote for today is from American actress Blake Lively, and she states that scents evoke very powerful memories, whether it's the son of someone that you know, someone who you love, or perhaps it was just a meal that your mother made. So tonight I challenge you to see if your food smells and tastes better based on the background sign. So see if your risotto pairs better with Beyonce or with Beethoven. Okay, we're out of time. Rest Rest hurry, to Greer, this Paul radio Eno, frequency 106.5.